Today's programme is brought to you by the number 23 billion. And as numbers go, it is big and it is clever. And it's clever because it happens to be related to the work of the great John Nash, the hero of the Oscar-winning film A Beautiful Mind. Nash worked in one of the most intriguing areas of mathematics, game theory. That means using equations and logic to work out the best way to play a game. One of the games that mathematician Ken Binmore enjoys studying is poker. You have to go to the World Poker Championships, you know, where they play for millions of dollars, very experienced players. And you see them sat at the table and they bluff like crazy with really bad hands for very large sums of money. This is what turned me on to game theory in the first place. And I just didn't believe it could be optimal to bluff so much. This is frequently the case in game theory. Okay, I, I'm going to try this on Friday night. And, and uh -huh. gonna... <laughs> you, you probably don't bluff enough because the reason you're bluffing is not because you might win anyway. You're bluffing because you want to be called sometimes when you're bluffing so people can see that sometimes when you bet high, you have a bad hand. If you never bet big with a bad hand, as soon as you bet big, everyone will know you've got a good hand, so you'll make no money on your good hands. So you bet big on some bad hands so that you'll make a lot of money on your good hands. So game theory is all about developing strategies, and it turns out to be a mix of highly complex mathematics with a large dollop of psychology thrown in. To understand game theory a bit better, here's Ian Stewart of Warwick University talking about one of the simplest games to analyse. The classic case is the two-person zero-sum game. That is, it's me against you, it's friends against enemies, and anything I lose, you win, and anything you lose, I win. The mathematics of these games is in finding the best possible strategy. So what is the simplest game? Scissors, paper, stone. You put your hand behind your back and you make one of three shapes. A clenched fist is stone, two fingers apart is, is scissors, and your hand held out is paper. And scissors cuts paper, paper wraps stone, stone blunts scissors. But there's no strategy to there's, that. Well, th there is a strategy, but it's a subtle one. If you and I were to play this game and I noticed that you tend to produce stone more often than one time in three, then I start using paper all the time or more often. And in the long run, probabilistically, I'll get an edge over you because you've put a pattern into your answers. And in fact, the correct strategy for that game is you must choose completely at random. And if you do, it's a fair game and nobody wins anything. If any player starts using a pattern, even a statistical pattern, the other player can spot it and get an advantage. So mathematicians study simple games like scissors, paper, stone and more complex games like poker and when they get bored they even invent their own games. Dave Beyer of Columbia University. In some sense being a mathematician your responsibility ultimately is to step back and say wait these aren't the right rules. If we look at the situation with a different set of rules more possibilities open up. It's much easier. So I think you find mathematicians generally love to switch games. They like to play lots of games because the experience of learning a new game is, is in some sense the most exciting. And, and when you talk about games, as a mathematician, you're talking about games beyond the traditional board games. You have a much wider definition. Game theory is a model for how uh, two or several people would interact with each other 
where their interactions, you know, at once could create common good uh, and at the same time conflict with each other. You know, we're in a commercial enterprise where we together could make a lot of money, but we're also at the same time trying to decide how to split the money. You know, that's a negotiation that could take the form of game theory. One of the pioneers of game theory was John von Neumann. In the 1930s, as well as analysing board games and card games, he showed that you could apply game theory to warfare and he ended up advising the American government on how to play the Cold War. It turned out that it wasn't so different from playing poker, in as much as it's a mix of threat and bluff. After warfare, game theorists tried to explain the game of economics. Economists thought it was a waste of time, but mathematicians were more optimistic. It's the simplest, rigorous mathematical model of taking decisions in an uncertain world. So the, the idea was that large-scale economics is the result of millions and millions of these little games being played, not necessarily consciously, but nonetheless that it, our collective economic behaviour emerges from large numbers of these things. So why not understand these things first? And John Nash, as in the film A Beautiful Mind, got himself a Nobel Prize in economics, somewhat belatedly, for very fundamental work in game theory. Thanks to Russell Crowe, many of us have some vague idea of who John Nash is. The film is in fact based on a book, also called A Beautiful Mind, and its author, Sylvia Nasser, was the first person to really uncover Nash's remarkable story. Nash was from West Virginia. He'd gone to an engineering school, Carnegie, as an undergraduate. But very quickly, the mathematicians at Carnegie realised that here was someone who was not destined to spend his life in a laboratory. In fact, he was terribly clumsy and knocked things over, but he was a born mathematician. Because here was somebody who, as an undergraduate, was reproving these great theorems by Fermat and Gauss, discovering them independently. So one of his advisors, who told him he absolutely had to go on to Princeton and study mathematics there, sent a letter of recommendation. It was the shortest letter that Princeton had ever gotten. It said only, this man is a genius. And he lived up to his reputation. While he was at Princeton, John Nash, still in his early 20s, developed the concept of the Nash Equilibrium. This is a very clever definition of what it means to reach a situation where all of the players will be happy. It may not be the best for any of them, but they will at least be happy that collectively uh, it'll do, so to speak. So it's almost a theory of compromise. And when you see this answer, any competent mathematician can check in about 10 minutes that this is a sensible definition. But it had eluded everybody up till Nash. He wasn't as interested constructively in how one might reach an equilibrium where everybody is happy with their position, but just what the properties might be of such an equilibrium. And he came up with an easier definition to fulfill. The idea of a Nash equilibrium is you go around the table and ask everybody, well, if everybody else stood still, would you want to change what you're doing? And as long as everybody's willing to sit pat, given that everyone else sits pat, that's a Nash equilibrium. And it turned out that lots of real-world situations, you know, had Nash equilibria that weren't amenable to analysis by the earlier methods. However, to start with, nobody could quite see how to apply a Nash equilibrium, and the idea was largely put to one side. At the same time, Nash began to suffer from mental illness. 
he descended into severe paranoid schizophrenia. He began to believe he was the Prince of Peace. He began to believe that he was being persecuted. A very well-known mathematician at Harvard at one point said to Nash, how could you, a mathematician, someone who's devoted your career to rationality, how could you believe that aliens from out of space were recruiting you to save the world? And Nash said, because the ideas came to me the same way that my mathematical ideas did, so I took them seriously. And no one thought things would ever change. It took decades before Nash would make a recovery from the illness that robbed him of his family and his genius. And just as he returned to the real world, his earlier work on the Nash Equilibrium began to be recognised. He won the Nobel Prize for Economics in 1994, and governments around the world realised that they could use Nash Equilibria to design very lucrative auctions. In fact, one of the main exponents of Nash Equilibria in designing auctions is the chap we heard from earlier in the programme talking about poker, Ken Binmore of University College London. An auction is a wonderful example of a game because the rules that govern the auction are the rules of the game. So the, the bidders are the players of the game and the strategies are your plan of action on how you're going to bid. And then the payoffs are who gets whatever is being sold and how much do they pay for it. It's great for us game theorists because although some of these auctions are quite complicated, they're not too complicated for us. We can actually analyze them. We can work out the Nash equilibrium of these games. And so we can predict what the players will do. They're good for us too because when, when these auctions are big, big auctions, we're talking about billions of dollars, the bidders are quite clever. You know, they understand there's huge sums of money riding on the outcome. And so they spend a lot of time thinking things through. They hire experts to help them do the calculations. And I think uh, it's a huge success for game theory. The sort of auctions that interest Ken Binmore are government auctions of licences to operate TV or mobile phones. In the past, these sorts of licences were handed out in a rather arbitrary fashion, a process that became known as a beauty contest. As a result, not much money was raised for the Treasury coffers. So Binmore, building on the ideas of John Nash, has been encouraging governments to auction their licences, to raise the maximum money. But an auction is an auction. So why do governments need mathematicians to tell them what to do? Well, it turns out that there are different types of auction. One way we could have done it is to run a sealed bid auction. So everyone simultaneously writes on a piece of paper how much they're willing to pay. And then you just give it to the highest bidder. Or you could run it with, like Sotheby's would with a guy on the podium with a hammer. And you know people have to say, you know, each time the price rises, people have to say whether they're in or out. And this continues until there's only one person who's in. I designed several auctions. I designed an auction in Denmark, which worked like this. That it's a sealed bid auction. Everyone makes their bid, but um, you know the four highest win a telecom license, but they will pay the price bid by the fourth highest. There's an infinite number of ways that you could design an auction. To see an example of a well-designed auction, we need to go back just a couple of years, when Ken Binmore applied game theory to developing an auction to sell the third-generation mobile phone licences. He spent two years 
thinking about which set of rules would raise the most money. He analysed every conceivable design of auction. Each of these designs corresponds to a game. Then what we do is we compute the equilibrium of this game for each possible type of player that there might be. That now we've got a prediction of what's going to happen in the game. And then we choose the, the game rules to make our prediction of the outcome as near the objectives of the principle, which in this case was the British government. And we've done this hugely successfully. And that's not an understatement. In the end, the auction raised almost £23 billion, which is where we started the programme, the number £23 billion. It takes a while to sink in, but £23 billion is a ridiculously vast amount of money. If Gordon Brown had chosen just to spend it, you know, he could have spent it um, in lowering income tax. So that would have been 10p of the rate of income tax for a year. So we're talking about huge amounts of money this, that this, were generated. absolutely enormous. And all because John Nash identified the Nash equilibrium. He started off 50 years ago analysing games like chess and poker, and now his ideas impact on global economics and generate billions of pounds for governments. As the letter to Princeton said, this man is a genius. Mathematicians stand out not because they're the smartest person. They stand out because they have very, very original takes on things and to have a sense of where you're going and why. And, you know, he was one of the great mathematicians of our century, but, you know, there are a number of people in that category, but he was highly original. And I think he got the Nobel Prize because he was bright enough to spot something which is so simple that nobody else saw it. And those are the big ideas very often, and people deserve recognition for being smart enough to see the obvious. It's obvious afterwards, but it's being the first person to see it. That's what gets you the prize. Another Five Numbers was presented by Simon Singh. The producer was Adrian Washbourne. The Everest season. I'm able to announce that the New Zealand has succeeded in conquering Mount Everest. To commemorate the 50th anniversary of one of mankind's greatest achievements, the very first ascent of Everest, Radio 4 presents a season of programmes, starting with an investigation into what happens to the body and the mind when mountaineers climb above 8,000 metres. Into the Air is on Friday morning at 11 o'clock. We're now on Radio 4 Longwave. It's time for the Daily Service. This morning is led by Ram Giddemal. <laughs> 